0: Welcome to Dave and darm Demystify, a fintech futures podcast, helping make sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Please sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and discuss it to make it clearer and easier to understand. Demystify.
1: Welcome to today's podcast and today we have a special guest, we always have special guests, but This one is a particularly special one in a week where much of the UK, certainly where Darmish and I live, have almost disappeared underwater with the floods that we've had with an extreme weather event. So we're jolly lucky to have Lucky Ahmed join us from ClimateX. So Lucky, do you want to give us a bit of background, talk a bit about ClimateX, and then we can talk about what you've been doing from a kind of data point of view is great for the people like us who are actually at the mercy to some degree of extreme weather events.
0: Yeah, sure thing. and Thanks for having me first and foremost. So it's great to be on this podcast. So Climate X is a business, just a quick introduction. Our real purpose is to enable stability to the impacts of a changing climate. And this is not about looking at how we decarbonize, how we measure carbon and trade offsets. There are a lot of people that are focused on the agenda of how do we make things less bad for the future as quickly as possible, and how do we get to net zero? And so that's an important piece of work. But on the other side of that climate agenda is the inevitable impacts of what you've just described and what you're experiencing now, which is the climate is changing. Whatever we do in our lifetimes and our generation, we're going to see that the effects of what's already happened in the previous decades catching up. And so extreme weather events are expected to become more frequent, more severe, uh, more polarizing. And so these are things that we have to start preparing for in ways that we haven't had to think about in the past. And I think that's partly driven by the fact that the expectation was that it would take longer to kick in and that we've got enough time to decarbonize, eventually transform into a more sustainable ecosystem. It just hasn't been the case. Things have materialized like that. And so what we're doing is we're Building and we have built predictive data analytics that allows us to look forward decades into the future, supplemented by climate models, and translating that into real balance sheet and financial impacts for our customers. So this is bringing a price tag to the cost of inaction. If you think about it, that's what we're basically doing, so that people can start to make more informed decisions about things like where do I build, where do I invest, what is the price of something. If I know that in the future, this building is going to end up in the ocean, is it worth as much today if that's within an investment time horizon that I care about? The answer typically is no. So how do you account for those types of things within the economic model? And that's basically what we're doing. And the reason why I'm doing this is because my background naturally lent itself to this type of problem statement. So actually prior to starting at Climax, I had a decade at HSBC where I was involved in the responses to the 08, 09 crisis and how we start to think about things like stress testing and bolstering um, the stability of banks from a financial point of view by taking hypothetical but plausible macroeconomic forward-looking scenarios and applying that to the balance sheet of the the banks that worked for both also the clients that would lend to and then turning that into business strategy into pricing decisions and so on so this is a lot of the work that we did and I just wanted to take this shock as opposed to being one that's induced by trade wars or Brexit or recessions, but actually climate. Climate is the conduit. And the reason why climate is like more perilous and more difficult is unlike political decisions that might drive a recession, which you can quickly reverse, you cannot do that with climate. The climate change won't change of course just because somebody else is in government. And so there's a lot more thinking that needs to go behind it. So that's the purpose of climate ClimateX as a business. It's here to price those impacts and to help build global uh, stability to the impacts of climate change.
1: It's such a fascinating area. It has been interesting over the last week to see, like, we have had floods, and they are, from what I hear, some of the worst floods that we've had in over 100 years. And literally, I've been going down and having a look at houses disappearing underwater in my local town of Henley. And, you know, you suddenly realise that, oh, actually, there is a going to be a huge financial penalty probably to the the people who own those houses. I'm not sure people will want to buy those houses, but from a kind of insurance point of view, there's going to be a huge insurance risk. Those houses will probably be mortgaged and those mortgages will sit in a bank somewhere. And I guess from a kind of a stranded asset perspective or assets, which are sort of at risk perspective, starting to model these things in terms of climate change feels really important. I mean, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time because I started writing about climate change and the green agenda with regard to finance almost two years ago. And one of the first things I did was look at the central banks. Now, they have a group which is very focused on the whole issue of risk and finance as far as climate change is concerned. And I I was very struck by the fact that the Central bankers themselves seem to be some of the most forward-looking people around this. and But one of the things they talked about was lack of data. There's a lack of data and models out there for people to use. So that sort of central bankers, is that something that kind of inspired you to get started? or?
0: It's an interesting one. Actually, this whole agenda, I think, was kick-started. There's a great speech, a seminal talk that Mark Carney, then Bank of England, the governor, he gave called The Tragedy of the Horizons. And if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend diving in. and it's, it's available on YouTube and other places. And what that was setting out was the existential nature of climate risk. And the fact that the, I think the quote was something along the lines of the window, the opportunity to resolve this is finite, but also shrinking. So yeah. you've got an additional facet that's here, which is shrinking. Other things you can take your time and eventually get to. This one, you don't have that luxury available to you. And I think with the eloquence with which Mark Carney sort of explained that challenge was important to raise this to the top of the agenda as something that everyone had to start discussing. Now, what happened um, after that, in 2019, there were some papers and consultations that kicked off with the Bank of England. And to the credit of the Bank of England, they tend to be the most robust as a regulator globally when it comes to dealing with the financial system and be having a bit more foresight, I guess, than others. But that paper set out a consultation that said climate risk, financial risk matters. So that correlation between climate change and financial risk, that was officially put out there in a supervisor statement. And that got the hairs running to say something's going to come of this and we recognize it. Because the Bank of England recognizes these types of risks, and they publicize the, the Goldman and they say that there's a challenge here that needs to be resolved. What you find is that other central banks, they also join forces. They also start to mobilize because they recognize the importance of this. If a globally systemic base is telling you, then we probably need to pay attention too. And where we sit now is there's something called the Network for Greening the Financial System, which might be what you're referring to today. Yes,
1: it's exactly what I'm referring to. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah,
0: one of the many acronyms that exist in the world of banking. So the NGFS,
1: FS, or whatever.
0: Yeah, DFS, there's a sale. No, it's the NGFS. And so these folks is a consortium of, and you're right, this is unprecedented, as well as I know, a consortium, a voluntary consortium of literally pretty much all of the central banks around the world There's also other players like BASE, the AFDB, so these types of trade bodies and industry voices that have also participated in trying to build a framework for how we get people to act on climate change and climate risk globally in some sort of consistent manner. Now, the unique thing with climate change is that you can't constrain it to a specific geography or to a specific country. It's not a country policy specific issue. Depending on what is happening at a global level, everybody's going to be impacted. It doesn't matter. And so they're collectively working together. And for a lot of people, that raises the question, why? Why is it that this consortium of central banks are pooling together in this way and this topic in ways that they've never done before? And what they've done is they've tried to connect at the high level, the highest levels, the worlds of finance, so all of these central banks, and also the world of the climate scientists. So they leverage the scenarios from the IPCC, these pathways that you might have heard of, they leverage those scenarios, and then they're pushing that onto the banks that they supervise. And they say, hey, in the same way during and post 08, 09, where we implemented stress testing, which means we're going to run these simulations across your balance sheet of your bank, and we want to understand how you're going to respond to that. And we want to make sure that you've got enough capitals, so enough money liquidity available to survive and withstand those shocks, I want to see what's going to happen from a climate perspective. And these are positioned as two specific things or general topics. One theme is on the transition risk. So this is what I mentioned at the start, which is how do we get to net zero? So if you're a heavily oil-dependent economy and the world is racing against no longer using oil and gas, you've probably got to transform your economy. What does that mean for the businesses? That's a core part of what they do. How do they transition? So that's the transition risk side. The other side is the physical risk component, which is somehow the question is, how do you take these scenarios, these emission pathways, and translate that to this dollar impact, which in turn needs to turn into a yes, no decision to do I lend? If I do lend to this customer, under what terms? And so you're trying to get to this binary outcome at the end, even with all this uncertainty that sits in the middle. And so for me, it was quite a fascinating problem statement to deal with. And actually, I was in banking at the time working on client side, one of the largest retail lenders in Europe. And I just couldn't find any data that I had myself had confidence in as a practitioner, someone that would use that data to implement it into these models. And so I just said to myself, what's the problem? Why is this so difficult? And being from a banking background, I know that I'm not a climate scientist. I don't have a PhD in any of these climate sciences. And so I said, first thing we need to do is we need to think about who needs to be involved in this equation. So I've got the banking lens and expertise as my co-founder. We are not climate scientists, so let's bring them on board. So we actually connected with one of the professors at Exeter, uh, Stefan Harrison, and he helped us to think about the climate problem. And then we said, actually, it's not just a physical risk problem of is there going to be more flooding or not. We need to be able to price it and turn this into a dollar impact. So the bank doesn't really necessarily care about The flooding, but they care about what it's going to cost them. So that's the next bit that they need to get to. So we then partnered with LSE, so London School of Economics, and we spoke to David Stainforth, just recently released a book on this topic, actually. And we collectively pulled together our minds to say, is this solvable through technology? How do we think differently about this problem statement? And from the ground up, since 2021, we started building what has now become Climax, which is a team and multidisciplinary team of PhDs, climate scientists, people that are financers and bankers that really understand how to model complex financial data sets. So we've built that in-house as well. And then there's also this translation into something that's a product that our customers can access and leverage in order to get on with the business, right? So there's no point of having all this data if it's too difficult for people to handle and manipulate and consume. So we started building this team in order to service that. And it was a natural fit with my experience, my background, having dealt with regulators, having dealt with risk teams and divisions and the business to say, actually, let's do this in a way that, by the way, is not just about ticking regulatory boxes. We shouldn't do it just because the regulator said so. It should be because it drives real business value. And one example I give of that is, would you like to know if this pen is worth $5 or 5,000, right? If you just want to know where you're on that scale and get as close to the real price as possible, this is exactly the same discipline. This property that might be worth a million dollars today, that's on the beachfront, based on all of the things that we usually consider. If I genuinely give you information that says there's a high probability of that building being in the ocean in the next decade or during your investment period or the exposure horizon, would you still say it's worth a million dollars? Or would you actually say, no, I'm going to have to protect this asset, invest capex, to protect its value. So therefore, it's not worth a million dollars anymore. If I'm a bank, am I going to take that risk and say that I'm willing to have that property's value go from one to zero overnight, or am I going to price for that? And so this is the, the natural discipline of translating this from a climate issue to a financial risk, a core fundamental risk type that I wanted to embark on solving. And that in turn gives us the impact that we want to deploy at a global scale, because this is an everyone problem. It doesn't affect just people that are in those properties. What you're seeing now already in the world is people are leaving places where they are being challenged with access to water, where it's too hot. These places are no longer livable and people are migrating. So they call them climate migrants. And for the first time in 2021, the number of people that were on the move around this planet because of climate-related issues was greater than all the people that were displaced due to all the wars in the world combined. And so, this problem, when it hits, if you think about the enormity of this challenge, there's nothing in this world that's going to stop people from moving. There's nothing in this world that's going to stop you from moving to a place where they can even live and fulfill the basic necessities of what they need to do. And so, these are other challenges that will come later down the line. And I say to everybody, do not think of this as a, I don't live in the flood zone. So you, unfortunately, were affected, both of you, by these floods recently. It doesn't mean that, therefore, if you weren't there, you're not affected. When the industry prices for it, that cost is going to transfer. Yeah, it's going to transfer over to you. It is. And unfortunately, that's a reality that's going to push people into new areas. It's going to change pricing mechanisms and the value of things, communities, divestment, et cetera. So this is an everybody problem, whether you like it or not, it's coming your way. And so people need to wake up to it.
2: This sounds like a really important topic. I love how you approach this from a finance perspective. But all of this stuff clearly sounds reliant on data. And do you have actually the data to, to really create accurate models? Where are you getting your data from? And is it really available, et cetera, to make the models work? It's a great question. And basically the thing we've
0: been obsessing over for the last couple of years and why we've raised millions of dollars has been specifically to get investment grade data. And I have to say, there's an important point about what you mentioned here, which is around accuracy and effectively the performance of the models. Now, because we're looking at forward-looking impacts, so these are decades into the future, trends and potential outcomes, and there's multiple potential pathways. So it's not, there's one future. We don't know if we're going to get to net zero. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. And there's different outcomes as a consequence of something as as simple as that, There's uncertainty, in other words. Now, I don't have a TARDIS or a time machine to go to 2090 and test whether my models worked or they didn't. I don't have that capability. So what we do is we utilize, first and foremost, these scenarios and emission pathways that people want to test against, which come from the IPCC. These are really good climate models. They've been tested and they're back-tested, which means that they look at historical observations. They change some of the variables and they compare the outputs of those models in terms of macro level trends like sea level rise, temperature change, and so on. And then precipitation rates, for example, and they will compare that to what actually happened in the real world. If those two things match really well, then you've got a model that basically does the job it should be doing, right? So that's at the macro level. What those models don't do, for example, in the case of precipitation or rainfall, is whilst they might say that, yes, there's an expected annual rainfall, that rate that we're expecting or amount over this area of London, they won't tell you what happens when that water hits the ground. So that's the bit that they don't do. So we do that translation. And so what we're doing is we're taking those inputs of things that drive floods or that drive tropical storms or that drive landslides or subsidence or whatever the hazard is, we take those inputs of those things that drive those hazards and we run them into our models and we simulate what's going to happen. Wherever possible, we use physics-based models, which means that we're not using machine learning, um, but instead we're replicating the processes of what happens in the natural world, right? So these are hydrological models, for example, in the instance of flooding. We then take our own approach to backtesting we will say that now we've built this model and we control that in-house. We hide PhDs that this is what they do. We take our own models. We take historical rainfall trends. And that could be over a period of time, or it could be an incident, like a specific event, like what you just experienced. And we'll say, well, actually, we know based on the rainfall over this area, how much rainfall there was. We are, in the UK, we love recording flood data, so we're really good at it. So we have a lot of that data. We can say, well, actually, that rainfall led to flooding in these areas. There are other places where there wasn't any flooding, even in spite of the fact that this rainfall happened, this inundation. How do our models compare? So we do a true false positive matrix, where we'll say, do our models successfully with that input, reproduce flooding in places where there was flooding? Does it keep dry the places that there wasn't any flooding? So does that represent as well? And we also offset that with the over and underestimations that we might have. So there might be places where we said there would be flooding, but it did actually happen. So we need to do the offset. And that gives us a quantitative measure of the model's performance in that region for that hazard type. And so what you'll see that we provide to all of our customers, to everybody that uses any points of data that belong, different from us, is that performance rating. And it's expressed as a percentage and that percentage can swing from a different range. So it could go from in one part of London for one hazard, it could be at 64%. And another part of the UK you might see that this same model is producing results at 95% in the performance rating. And the reason for that is because there could be underlying limitations in the data. There could be something about the physical characteristics of the land that we did or didn't get quite right. There could be other types of limitations. And so what we do is we are fully transparent with our customers on those results. So they know how much confidence to have in that number when they see it. And in addition to that, a big part of the challenges that you'll see, and Dave, you've looked at this, you might've heard about this transparency challenge and black boxes, and we don't really understand what this means and how these results were produced. Because I came from the world of banking, because I used to deal with the regulators, one of the things that I know acutely and our customers are aware of is the end number is great, but the story for how you got to that number is almost more important. Because if you believe in the methodology, you believe in the logic that took you there, you have to accept that number. And what we do, therefore, is we say, this is the approach that climax you want to take. I give you, first and foremost, the ingredients list. So you've got the shopping list, so all the data sources. We open up to our customers. We then give you the recipe card, which is basically the methodology. And we've built that to something called the model risk management principles and standards that banks deploy internally. I don't have to do that as a vendor because I'm not obliged to do it, but we did that to make our customers more confident in what they're dealing with for really important decision-making. So the recipe card. And then at the end, we give you the cake. So hopefully you like the cake and you like the taste of it. And it's up to the customers to decide if they trust that process well enough and have enough confidence in it to make those decisions. And what we don't do is we don't hide limitations that we're aware of in our models and pretend they don't exist. We actually expose our customers to that. So in our methodology, we have assumptions because sometimes you have to make assumptions because there's an absence of data. Sometimes there are known limitations to the models because of technological issues, data issues, could be anything. And maybe one day we'll find solutions to overcome those limitations. Maybe we won't. And so we open that up to our customers as well. So they see everything, and I think that's why increasingly we're seeing that the market, the financial services market, the regulated markets are coalescing around us because the level of trust is actually improved and increased by that level of transparency and confidence in saying, this is what we have. And by the way, it's important to note that our models do not perform generally at 10% and 5% on accuracy, otherwise I wouldn't disclose them, I'd consider them not fit for purpose. Right? So we have our own standards and thresholds of what we think is good enough to be useful. It can't be a toss of a coin, or more often than not, it's wrong that it is right. Well, that makes perfect sense. And then,
1: just quickly, in terms of the product itself, I mean, you have a an interface through your product called Spectra. I think it's called Spectra, isn't it? Yeah. Which enables you to basically, from a map point of view, have a look at regions and postcodes and zip codes and look at risks associated with those postcodes, which I can imagine if you're a, a large financial services or a, any client, being able to get to that level of detail would be extremely useful.
0: Yeah, it's actually more granular than that. So we have built the models so that they provide results and resolutions up to 10 meters in, in squared in resolution. And that's the average size of a building footprint. And depending on the hazard, some of them might be at 90 meters, for example, instead of 10. We could go higher in resolution. We don't because it's not useful. And you also can't validate the data. There's no data sets in the world that I'm aware of that tell you that this corner of this building flooded. So how do you know that increasing the resolution gives you any more accuracy or improved performance? Number one. Number two, there's increased computational power, which then you charge back to the customer that they pay for, but they don't retrieve any additional value. You don't want to know about a corner of a building. You want to know the building's risk. So this is the level of modeling that we go into. And when I say we sometimes go lower resolutions to like 90 meters, for example, that could be because of subsidence models. There's not a difference every 10 meters or possibility of a difference every 10 meters. is going to be so much of a change in the bedrock and the things that drive subsidence as there could be in a flood zone area. So if I'm if I a street and I'm at the top of the street and somebody else at the bottom, then obviously on every 10 meters, you could see significantly different trends in terms of flood risk. But the ground itself doesn't change as frequently as topography can, so therefore we don't need to model to those resolutions. So um, the resolution piece is at that level that we go to at a global scale across the whole of Europe, the whole of North America's, the whole of APAC, I think it's 87 million square kilometers that we cover, it's 83% of the uh, world's economy that we can provide you instant access to data. And it's not just around the actual flooding and the fires and storms, but it will give you the severity, the probability, a rating if you want it, and all of the range, min, max, et cetera, of the potential outcomes. But we also provide building level data as well. So we've painstakingly mapped out 1.5 billion properties around the world. So the building that you're starting right now, we will know where the building is. We know roughly where it's made of. We know how many units there are It's multi-occupancy. We've got structural integrity data, and that was important so we could do this dollar translation, right? So we can build these reconstruction costs and give you an expected annual loss number that you can process. Because our customers, the banks or governments even, they don't have that data available to hand. So when you lend a mortgage, you don't ask about the age of the, you might have information that's in a PDF somewhere that tells you about the age of the building. You won't necessarily have the fact that the walls are made of bricks or that, the square footage is X, that information doesn't exist, our customers don't have it. So we map that out on their behalf so that their job is really easy, all they give us an address. So the resolution is important, but we do it at meaningful resolutions that we can ultimately validate and make sure that we're confident that when our models are compared to, and their performance are compared to real world observations, there's something there that gives us confidence about the performance of it. So that, that's how we think about resolution and accuracy And the final point is, this is not just about banks, as you say, this is incredibly useful for people that are the corporates themselves. So our banks are really empowered to use our data to help these businesses to build resiliency by making sure that those sites continue to operate. Because we don't stop at the building level, we go beyond that, and we look at downtime risk. So we've also mapped out 44 million miles of road, rail, power grid infrastructure, flood defenses around the world. And so we can tell you that this building, yes, there's an impact to the actual exposure in terms of its value, reconstruction costs, but that's the building specific. But if I'm a corporate or exposed to a corporate, I probably care not only about that, but actually the ability for that site to generate revenue and to remain operable. So what happens if I'm Amazon or Sony and a key distribution facility cannot be accessed because the roads and rail around it are flooded, what does that mean for that business? What does that mean for the revenue generated potential and its credit risk? So we solve that problem as well by dealing with downtime risk so that governments can start to think about vulnerable communities as a whole, as opposed to specific assets, so that corporate lenders can start to think about the credit grade of the businesses that they're trying to support and make sure that they've got the right capacity to keep doing and, and to continue trading. So, there are additional use cases here that are at play. And I think the economy is powered by these banks. So I think banks have an incredibly important role to play to get that awareness to the frontline customer and to fund the adaptation work that needs to happen to protect them.
1: I think it's remarkable. I mean, and, and for me, it's also really interesting because you're not trying to solve climate change, you're measuring climate change and the impact of climate change into the future. And I guess that's a really interesting position to be in as well. So we're kind of used as the public, I guess, to climate change being a, a an activist thing and a, an agenda-based activity. But what you're talking about is really the impacts of this stuff, that whether we believe it or not, there are models there which are predicting this. And from what I can see from what the IPCC say as well, that models are, broadly speaking, predicting the outcomes that we're seeing. It's just rather frighteningly, the outcomes are happening sooner than they said, isn't it? So I've got one more question and then over to you, Don, But why wouldn't any financial services company bite your hand off for this information? I mean, what would stop a company going, well, we don't want this because it may make us have to uh, do things differently. Like, what would be the reason somebody wouldn't take you on?
0: It's not the problem we're facing right now, <laughs> which is... Well, which, yeah, which we're pleased about. As I mentioned at the start, we, there are tailwinds in terms of regulation, the central banks. There's very little opposition to this specific challenge around physical risk and environmental risks and pricing them. In fact, if you look at the recent papers that have gone out through the FSB and the Fed in the US, the feedback from the banks was generally positive in terms of, you just know you have to price for this stuff. You can try to ignore it, but nature's taking its toll and people are experiencing these impacts. You're seeing in places like Florida... In places like California, that insurance is just being withdrawn. So all these banks thought, we'll just transfer the risk to the insurers. But it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. And so in the end, the people that suffer is the people that live in those properties, not the banks. They'll find a way to solve it. Somebody said to me once that money is never lost. It just changes hands. And that's basically the reality of what's happening here. So I think we're not seeing opposition in that regard. I think the bit that's more politicized, Is the transition side. It's we don't want to fund this company that's involved in oil and gas anymore unless they've got a clear transition plan. And then you think about the communities that are living and dependent on these industries for generations. So how do you help them transform and transition into a new economy? So those are the places where there's more politicization. We fortunately don't see it. But the other thing is we drive genuine value and improved client engagements through the work that we do. So We haven't spoke about it in depth because it's adjacent to the problem of the physical risk. But actually, if you think about a bank, they have a workflow. It's not like the climate change physical risk problem just appears on someone's desk in a puff of smoke and they've got to deal with it and it just disappears after that and it's gone. There's other things they need to deal with. And what we've done is we've gone upstream and downstream across some of those challenges. That means that our customers, they can become more competitive in terms of the way that they deal with their clients, the engagements, value-add insights they can drive to them, they can drive revenue to their businesses, you know, they've got the opportunity to fund some of that adaptive work that can happen some of those projects to build a retaining wall, to strengthen the foundation of the asset, to help preserve its value. They can fund that work, they can provide the insurance today at a lower premium than if they were to do it later. So it becomes a revenue-generating opportunity for the um, financial institutions that want to get ahead and transact faster and have better and more accurate pricing. So it's actually a good, positive story. And that's the way that we see this agenda, but it ultimately has, and I think more important than anything, a positive impact when it comes to society and building resilience. Like that's what matters in the end is you might go into the office and as a banker with your banker hat, have a problem or think you are gonna have a problem. But when you go home and that property's flooded, you'll become on the receiving end of the problem. This is unlike other types of risk because it will affect you whether you like it or not. So it's in everybody's collective interest to sort it out and price it and to build stability and resilience as quickly as possible.
2: Definitely. sure. So one last question. You've talked or mentioned quite often about the economics of this stuff and its broader impact, et cetera. And it's good that you you are talking with your banking background, the banks and financial institutions because they are a major player. But as we've seen with like COVID, yes, they had a massive role to play, but at the end of the day, the puppeteer was the government. And my question is really, how involved is the government or people from those areas involved in your work as well? Not enough is the short answer. So the central banks, the
0: Bank of England, leaders globally, I would say, but working really closely with the ECB, They're doing some great work in the space. In Singapore, MAS, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, their regulators, doing some great work. And in the US now, I think they've just realized that this is not a politicized issue. It just needs to be sorted. And so we're seeing good traction there. The problem is not solved even by our data, actually. The reality is, if we find, as you've experienced, that in London, the infrastructure is not ready to deal with these types of events whether it's wildfires, whether it's the drainage doesn't work for the level of rainfall that we're going to get and these flash floods and et cetera, you need someone to finance that infrastructure and the adaptation that's required. Adaptation finance and unlocking that is critical and knowing where to put that finance and where to prioritize those projects is also critical. So there's a huge amount of work that needs to happen in order to get the governments to do this work and to enable councils, local governments, and authorities to go ahead and invest. And my big concern is that's not happening. And a big part of that is because these political cycles, the things that sound sexy, that deliver results that people want to hear on a day-to-day basis, it's something that affects them here and now. Like we're very short-term minded as human beings, right? Like we want instant gratification. The idea of this is if this works and the adaptation measures really prevail, you won't notice any difference Your life won't it's not that it won't get better it won't get worse <laughs> and yeah, significantly so so it becomes really difficult to get people excited about it in the same way as other things that you could instead politicize and i think that's part of the challenge is adaptation finance piece and how do you get people really drive behind this now the other one specific to the uk but also in the us they've got similar challenges about in them is a lot of the insurance today is effectively subsidized, right? So we have the floodgree program here in the UK, where properties that are on existing uh, or were on existing floodplains at the time of that going into force, they were protected and subsidized so that people can continue to live there. And you know that there's going to be a horrific flood event that's going to happen once a year, or once every couple of years, and that the insurance won't become unaffordable to a point where you literally end up with stranded assets and you default on your mortgage payments and nobody's going to mortgage that property anymore. So in terms of policy, there was something there that was built. And actually the purpose of that was so that in the course of floodry or during the course of floodry, new buildings would be developed elsewhere. So you move communities to less flood prone areas, but that hasn't happened in practice. What's happened is that we've continued to build on flood plains, existing flood plains that we already knew were problematic. We built on new places, which are future flood plains as we now start to experience, and so the whole flood reprotection scheme is now being challenged because it cannot last forever. So there are reviews happening to bring together the world of insurance, banking, uh, to understand what the right thing is to do. Not just from a prudential point of view, this is not just about finance, financial impacts, it's also about conduct. And it's about the experience of you living in a property that you're trapped in. This is about the human experience of living in these places. And we shouldn't take away from that. This is, it's traumatic to go through. Some of these types of things where a childhood home is completely washed away, and you, you cannot go back, and you're displaced for weeks on end or more, and the life savings that you ploughed, and I've dealt with people that had this circumstance, they've saved and saved, they've eventually bought that dream home, they ploughed the life savings into it, and that property now is worth nothing, but they have to keep paying the remote the mortgage, in spite of the fact that the value dropped to zero, because that's the liability, that's what they signed up for. They just didn't have that foresight at the time. So I think there are a lot of challenges that need to be resolved when it comes to the political agenda of recognizing if you want to protect society, which is, I think, the government's priority is protect your people. Then that doesn't just mean against wars and other countries and bad actors and civil threats. But this environmental challenge, I think, is a bigger one that needs a lot more foresight. And I hope that whatever governments we get next year after the election, they they drive this up the agenda and unfortunately, a COP, we didn't see enough of it again, right? It's always been seen as something that could undermine the efforts of mitigation, because why would you bother to transform if you can just build your way at the problem? That's human ingenuity for you, right? And that's been one of the big problems is we need to stop this. And we need to just get on with the job of recognizing this is a reality and start to fund the work. We will give you the data that tells you where to target this stuff. Somebody needs to pick up the spade. I mean, we need that future workforce to be ready in order to do that work.
1: Amazing. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. That's been a real tour de force around the subject and also helping us to better understand what ClimateX is all about. Really appreciate you joining us.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Darm Demystify. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time as we take another topic and demystify it.